Hello, and welcome to Driverless. I'm your host, Zach Adams. On today's episode, I talked with John Fesco and Todd Northman about GM's announcement on Monday that they would be laying off over 14,000 employees, shutting down five factories, including the one in Lordstown, Ohio, and seizing production on six different sedan models. CEO Mary Barra said that these moves would allow GM to optimize their vehicle portfolio and double the company's efforts in electric vehicles and self-driving technology. Todd, John, and I broke down what this means regarding GM's pursuit of autonomous vehicles, what the future of the sedan and autonomous world looks like, and if this is just the beginning of the impact of autonomous vehicles on the American workforce. There's so much to cover with a huge announcement like this. So, let's get rolling. All right, Todd and John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Zach. Great to be here. Same here. All right, guys. So today we're going to be talking about the uh, announcement GM made on Monday. Uh, according to GM, they'll be laying off uh, over 14,000 employees. They're planning on shutting down five factories in the United States and Canada, and actually specifically in our backyard uh, in Lordstown, Ohio, where you know, 16 million vehicles have been produced uh, since the first car, a Chevy Impala, uh, was made there in 1966. Um, by next year, GM will no longer make six different sedan models. CEO Mary Barra said that these moves would allow GM to optimize their vehicle portfolio and double the company's efforts in electric vehicles and self-driving technology. Um, you know, since the announcement was made as of today's recording, their stocks dropped 2.5%, and uh, there's been some uproar. So, first off, let's get uh, your guys' first impressions. I love this move. It is a signal to the future, and it's not just the stock market to whom Mary Vera is sending this, but really to all of the AV industry. And recognize she followed Ford and uh, Fiat Chrysler in halting the production of some sedans, but it is a very strong move that she knows what the company needs to do to compete as the economy turns down. So it's brilliant. I couldn't think more highly of Mary Barra. Very brave move and a terrific signal, even though, and I recognize the pain for the individual workers is vast, but I think that's a bigger societal issue that we can talk about later. For me, you mentioned the six vehicles that they'll be uh, discontinuing. While it does seem to mirror some of the moves that Ford has done in getting away from the traditional sedans, when you dig into that a little more, specifically the elimination of the Chevy Volt and the Cadillac CT6, the, the Chevy Volt, a lot of people would have thought, is a car of the future, being a hybrid. Perhaps this is the start of a hybrid not being green enough, and it's true electrification of the vehicle. Um, that will be what's needed to maintain that competitive advantage moving forward. And with respect to the, the CT6, it's the only car that has supercruise right now. Uh, so obviously that's a, a direction that I'm sure GM wants to continue to move, and I don't think that means they're shuttering supercruise, but will we see it roll out to their other vehicles a little faster than anticipated uh, with this move? And John, I think... I think that brings up an interesting point. You know, GM's saying that they're doubling their efforts in both self-driving technology and electric vehicles. A previous announcement actually had GM plan to release more than 20 new electric vehicles by 2023. Uh, but yet it's shutting down production of its only car with Super Cruise, right? It's only car with self-driving technology and uh, the Volt. It's kind of interesting to see that, you know, they're saying they're making these efforts, but this seems like a move in direct opposition of that. I mean, what do you guys make of that? Well, I mean, I think 
It's very simple. GM is going to be manufacturing cars people want to buy, and it isn't any more complex than that, and that's why I applaud Mary Barra, really. It, you could get it more complicated than that, but really if you look at what's happening, particularly in the United States, but globally, at what cars people want to buy, it has skewed dramatically since 2010 to SUVs, that line. So I do expect the Super Cruise to be deployed in different vehicles, but it's for sure not going to be a sedan or anything that looks like a sedan. Yeah, I think you can sidestep a lot of those issues pretty quickly just by rolling out Super Cruise. I know that's not as simple as it as I just made it sound because you've got to install the hardware to make that possible, but if you can ramp up the introduction of Super Cruise to other vehicles, you address that first concern, and then the other is simply a, a reflection of what people want to buy today. It's kind of simultaneously addressing where folks think the industry is headed and the realities of where the industry is today at the same time. And just picking up on that last point, let's underscore that the production of sedans in China continues apace. And that's because that is the biggest market for GM right now. And selling those vehicles is highly profitable. So, you know, when we talk about slowing down or discontinuing sedans, you need to follow the money and realize that the industry doesn't make money on sedans. It makes a ton of money on SUVs and those form factors, the light truck. And so, you know, you guys are just hitting on something I really want to cover. More so than just eliminating these sedans, we're seeing that multiple car companies now are getting sedans out of their portfolio, notably American car companies. Uh, you know, what do we make of this shift away from sedans by GM, by Ford and other companies like that as we get prepared for kind of this autonomous revolution? Do we think it's just a cost-saving measure? Uh, because, you know, as you said, Todd, they're making more of a profit on these bigger vehicles, or do we think that signifies something else? What'll be interesting to me is Will we continue to see this as more cars become electrified? Because while I think it's true that we're seeing some of the traditional OEMs eliminate their sedans, especially their gas-powered sedans, there's a big exception to what you just said, and that's Tesla, which not only has um, the, the Model S, but obviously the Model 3 is a huge part of its production right now. Um, so there's one car company that's extremely deep in the electrification of, deep, of vehicles, extremely deep into the automation of vehicles, and they don't seem to be shying away from, from sedans at all. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if this is just a sign of for the traditional OEMs to clean up some of their, their product lines, or is this something that everybody's going to have to do? I'm not convinced this is something that everybody's going to have to do. To your point, and, and this is kind of my take on it, you know, I think you're right, it's not something everyone's gonna have to do, but I think it's really telling what companies are doing it, right? We're seeing this with GM, which, uh, you know, Cruise is eventually going to be a ride-sharing app, right? So they're looking at this uh, in their portfolio as, what makes the most sense for our automated vehicles as part of this fleet? And what makes sense for them is bigger vehicles with that can carry more passengers, because miles per gallon isn't really a, uh, a constraint they're gonna have in the future, right? Because we're getting away from combustion to electric like you said, but the companies that are still rolling out these sedans, notably Tesla, what's different about them? They're not looking to manage a fleet. They're not looking to do passengers per mile. They're looking to sell you a car. And, and in, to some extent, people are always going to want sedans or coupes based purely on nothing but aesthetics or family size being different. You know, They don't have the same economic uh, incentives that a fleet management company would have. Well, and I think that 
to a certain extent, conflates Cruise and GM. Obviously, GM is still interested in selling you a car, and maybe this is an, an indication of where GM is headed in the future. Um, but for now, sure, Cruise wants to sell you a ride, but GM still wants to sell you a car. Sure, and I, I think what I'm getting at is I think this is a tip of the hand for the future. I think the fact that they're making this move, while, yes, they're still selling cars now, they clearly see Cruises of the Future. And they've seen Cruises of the Future, to their credit, like you said, Todd, to Mary Bear's credit. I mean, they've known that this is coming. And I think this sign just kind of solidifies that they're all in on that method and that they may see, you know, their sale to private individuals dwindle in the future. But that's okay because they're going to make it back with these fleets of, you know, SUVs that can carry eight passengers just as efficiently as they can carry one passenger. Or maybe it's uh, hearkening back to Henry Ford's quote about uh, when he was first coming out with cars that you could have any color car you wanted as long as it's black. This could be a sign that you can have any, we'll happy to sell you any vehicle that you want as long as it also fits with the ones that we're trying to design for cruise. Sure. Yeah. Or, you know, even further, we're happy to give you a ride in any car you want as long as it's this car that can also hold seven other people. Yeah, and I just to jump in, because I want to pick at a word that you use, Zach, um, aesthetics. And I think it's easy to look at the the signal from using the word sedan and overhear that. Because if you look, and I'll just use the, the GM Equinox, which is the ninth most popular selling vehicle, really. But it is nominally an SUV, but the truth is it is a phenomenal ride as a sedan used to be. And I think that's a large part of what we're seeing, particularly in the United States market, is the form of vehicle is suited to please the aesthetics of a contemporary buyer but it isn't really different in operation or purpose than a sedan. It doesn't carry more people, it gets the same mileage. And so when I think of the future of fleets, I think we really need to define what time period we're looking at because I don't think we can tell what the form of an autonomous vehicle is gonna look like in 20 years, but one thing I would guarantee you is that it isn't going to look like anything you can buy today other than a shell. That form of vehicle isn't going to make sense because by the time we get autonomy fully implemented and crashes go down, there will be no need to have these heavy vehicles right now. It'll be electric, electrified and very light, and the form will depend on what use it is. So when you hail a ride, it could look like a smart car now. There's no reason that that vehicle needs to be there if you're just going in a downtown environment. But Todd, don't you think aesthetics will still drive some of the purchasing decisions based on consumer, you know, you're talking about consumer preference and practical use as kind of two separate things. But don't you think there will be instances where, you know, me, if I'm a buyer and I'm not really concerned about the price, I'm not really concerned about the practicality of it, I just want, you know, the coolest ride, right? I want the equivalent of a, a roadster today. Don't you think there will still be autonomous cars that try to capture that market? A hundred percent. But I don't see that that's going to drive the market overall. That's going to drive a company like Tesla, really these boutique type vehicles. And so I think we will see more customization. And that's where Tesla, I continue to be fascinated by their ability to capture that market because they're building a fantastic car, but its price point, we've seen this with the Model 3, 
is not coming down to the general market. They have eaten the lunch of BMW, Mercedes, really the luxury sedan market. That's where they're taking their volume from, and that's going to continue to exist. But, you know, to sort of go back on themes we've hit on in previous podcasts, these are going to be very expensive cars for you to buy. So when we talk about buying a vehicle, I think in 20 years' time, most people aren't going to own a vehicle, and you're not going to choose what sort of vehicle other than based on function you ride hail, essentially. You're not going to own any particular vehicle. You're going to climb in the vehicle that shows up, just like you do with Uber today. No, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think your point is well had that Tesla, for as well as they're doing, they are a niche, right? They are a very specific, the, the person who wants the cool electric car is going to buy a Tesla, right? Not the person who just wants an electric car, not the person who just wants a cool car, but a very specific niche. Um, I think you're right. Keep in mind too, we're talking about seven passenger vehicles as though that's where the shift is. What's the car that Cruise is focused on now? The Chevy Bolt, not, not the Volt with a V, but a Bolt with a B, which is a small station wagon. It's far from a seven-seater uh, vehicle. And while ride-sharing, it may make sense to have a larger car in the sense of if my family unit just owns one car and I'm going to farm it out to some of the day to take me to the office, some of the day to take uh, my kids to school, whatever. A family vacation. Right. You may want a larger car because just you're going to need that space when you need that space. Most of the rides that are happening out there will probably still be fine in a four-passenger vehicle. So I don't, I don't know that we're going to see this overwhelming shift that it has to be a seven-passenger large SUV for it to make sense in a ride-sharing app because that's not what, what we see today. Well, and just to make sure we don't miss that point because you've said a mouthful, John, most rides today are single passenger in a vehicle. And that's where I was really getting at with the different form factors, because I don't see that changing. I know that there are Uber, those sort of folks would love to envision a future. That's part of what Waymo is doing, where they're hauling large groups of people. But I really think what you're going to see is even more specialization, where I'm far more likely to take a vehicle by myself if it's electrified from my house here rather than riding the train, because I can, and it's even cheaper than paying the RTA 250 a ride at that point. So I really think we need to bear in mind, we don't know what these are going to look like, but I think they are going to be very particular use depending on what you want to do with the vehicle. So with all that said, what do you guys think the future of the sedan is in you know a world where we have more autonomous vehicles, potentially more ride sharing, things like that? Do we still think there's a place for the sedan? Uh, for sure. I mean, for the same reason there's a place for Tesla. You're going to want a sedan. It may look like the Roadster, that sort of thing, but I, that that market will be tapped. My guess is it's going to be electrified, but you know, similar to the themes we've hit. I, to me, the important thing to take away from this is we don't know what it's going to look like, but I wouldn't rule out any form because it's going to be very customized. And that's part, you know, to return to the theme that we started with, part of what GM is doing and why I continue to think this is a terrific move is they are going to a customized manufacturing process where it makes sense to manufacture even more types of vehicles depending on what people will buy and what sort of profit they can make. Yeah, I, I agree. I think in the initial wave, folks will just be excited to have autonomous and electric cars and probably care a little bit less about aesthetics. But as that becomes the norm, then I think you'll absolutely see diversification of, of um, the product lines from there. 
And Todd, I think you make an awesome point about uh, the potential modularity of these vehicles. We're already seeing now where um, you know you're building these cars online, right? You the things you're able to choose from are becoming more and more nuanced, and it kind of follows the same model we saw with you know personal computers. Once upon a time, you just bought the computer. Now I can build my own computer. I can choose that I want this RAM or this hard drive or whatever. And it's only a matter of time, I think, before we see these cars being incredibly customizable. Um, the question there is going to be how much sense does that make for the manufacturer, especially considering uh, companies that are like you know GM, where they've got a ride sharing um, you know unit that they don't maybe care as much about that nuance. But I think modularity is going to be a big part of the future with these cars. Right. No, I think that's right. And just to put a plug for the company, we're not discussing Ford. They've put out a lot of literature and discussed very publicly what is animating their decisions, and it really is striving to find a business model on which they can make money. And I think that's really what I'd leave this conversation with, is no one knows how they're going to make money, but that's the question they're trying to solve. Right. And kind of one thing I want to touch on before we get out of here is, you know, um, specifically we're based in Ohio, uh, and the Lordstown plant closing has made national news. You know, the Wall Street Journal's picked up an article on them and how this impacts the families and, you know, the community at large. Is is this just the start of the unintended consequences uh, that we're going to see from our shift towards combustion engines to electric engines and autonomous vehicles? Um, I mean, people talk about, you know, we're not going to see taxi drivers, we're not going to see bus drivers, things like that. But now we're starting to see people losing jobs in the manufacturing sector, sec- sector that maybe uh, wouldn't have been as, um, you know, we wouldn't be able to see them as well going into this. I, I think it is. And this gets us back to the AV 3.0, which we discussed just a few weeks ago. Uh, that was one of the things that was on the Department of Transportation's mind. Uh, is there moving towards autonomous vehicles, what's going to happen to the jobs that that this replaces. And while it's possible that we'll see some jobs come out of this, I know there there have been some tweets out of the White House that maybe suggested that this isn't the end of the conversation um, for what it's worth. Uh, There's no indication right now that anything's going to be made of that. And there was no part of the announcement beyond investing, doubling the investment in autonomous and electric vehicles, there was no hard um, direction for it as to how that's going to happen. Um, so th- this, for me, is one of the first times where you're actually putting uh, faces and numbers to that amorphous concern about job loss. And I, I guess I just disagree to some extent, um, recognizing that it's easy to listen to what the company is saying and draw that line. But to me, you go back to January 2017 when they stopped the third line, and then in April in 2018 when they stopped the second line, and now the announcement that they're going to drop the the final line in Lordstown, and you realize what this really is is a revolution in manufacturing more than it is in the auto industry, and recognizing that 
Japan has these uber flexible factories and that's really what we've seen here is GM has had these single vehicle plants that don't make economic sense. It's phenomenally expensive for the company to dedicate the line in Lordstown that's I think it's at 30% of capacity. Really the only rational decision they could have made was to close these down and I, I hate that and the way I put it because it sounds so harsh and I don't mean that but the reality is the GM needed to close down these plants not to invest in autonomy. They're making tons of money. I believe they've spent over $20 billion in dividends and share buybacks over the last five years. So this is not a short-term move to save a couple bucks. And I know we've seen tweets, I think it's from Sherrod Brown, about a greedy corporation. And this really is a signal that they're thinking much farther in advance than this next year's profits because they're doing terrific financially now. But what they can't assure us is if they continue to operate, they have, that they'll remain profitable. They're going to be in the same situation they were a decade ago if they don't right-size this and start having production lines that make sense economically. Yeah, and to be clear, I, I guess when I was talking, this is an interesting that, that you went from there. I was thinking more from perception, and I think your comments go more towards reality, which is the always the push and pull when you get an announcement like this. Um, but it'll be interesting how folks take this. You mentioned Sherrod Brown's comments. It's so easy to spin this, given what the announcement was, to say you lost your jobs, 14,000-plus people, because we need to invest in electrification and autonomy. And at a time where we just saw a pronouncement from the Department of Transportation saying that we are pro-private industry and we're going to let you handle this, if suddenly the folks that um, the uh, Department of Transportation, which reports to the White House, if suddenly there's a, a change of view as to how nice we should be to the people making those vehicles, will that maybe lead to a shift in, in how favorable autonomous vehicles are being viewed by the Department of Transportation? I don't know. Yeah, well, and certainly it's a fool's errand to try to predict what's going to happen in politics, but... I would be very disappointed if that's true because I think this decision is consistent with the push that AV 3.0 signaled, which is we want a globally competitive automotive industry, and this is part and parcel of that, and we need to continue. But I recognize that that's easy for me to say my job is not on the line. And Todd, I, I think a point that you made that I, I totally agree with is how much of this, you know, we're shutting down these this factory and we're taking away these jobs to double our investment, how much of that is just kind of spin zone, right? How much of that is just either way, this plant wasn't going to make sense in a year or two. Either way, these jobs were going away. But it's a lot better for us as a company, for our stock, for our shareholders, to tell them that the reason we're doing this is so that we can make this investment in the future, as opposed to the reason we're doing this is because it just doesn't make sense anymore. Uh, in a way, it's actually striking to me that GM was trying to take the less callous approach, right, and say that these jobs are going away for a greater good. Well, and I'll stop playing devil's advocate on my point and, and add one thing to, to your side. You did see that with the initial stock price um, and, and what happened to it. Right. You mentioned at the start that it's down. It's been down following a couple of, of further comments um, in the last few days. But initially, after this announcement happened, it went up. You know, this isn't going to be the end. Uh, as far as if there are unintended consequences of autonomous vehicles leading to job losses, this isn't going to be the end of that. 
And we're going to see other, you know, people talk again about taxi drivers, bus drivers, things like that. We're going to see less auto body mechanics because the types of accidents that these cars eliminate are those small fender benders. We're going to maybe see um, less farmers, right? Because farmers are going to be able to, you know, cultivate and maintain their land with fewer people working it. So there will be unintended consequences, but I think Todd's point is well had that this wasn't necessarily only about the push towards the future. And I think it's just a matter of time. I think it's unrealistic to think that anytime you take a job away from a person who uh, worked on some aspect of a combustion engine vehicle that you would automatically have to come up and create a job um, related to an electric autonomous car. Uh, but it's just a matter of time before those start ramping up. Right. And we'll see new jobs. We'll see remote operators. We'll see vehicle to X communicators. We'll see data analysts, things like that. And hopefully uh, the workforce will adjust accordingly. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for your time. That was great. Uh, and yeah, thanks, Todd and John, for both coming on. Help break this down. Thanks much, Zach. Thank you. All right. That's going to do it for today's episode of Driverless. Please rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to future episodes on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Uh, you can reach us at driverless at tuckerless.com or at underscore driverless on Twitter if you have any feedback or thoughts on episodes you've heard in the past or would like to hear in the future. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.